Just as I was about to record this message, I got a note from an old friend of mine. We're the same age and have similar backgrounds. That is, we are both former compulsive sinners. His note read in part, quote, So many wasted days chasing dreams and having fun. Time is telescopal. At times it seems way too long and then it's way too short. That's exactly what we want to examine together in this hour. I remember as a very young man trying to escape my many personal inner conflicts by focusing on the much larger conflicts of the world. 
I found I could do that by studying all the current rages of theories regarding the end of the age and end times. I could turn away from my seemingly unfixable inner turmoil and delve into the political, philosophical, ecological, metaphysical, international turmoil of the 1970s. And, and I could sanctify the avoidance of my own confusion by doing it all in the context of biblical prophecy. Prophecy was exciting. It was like a sort of roller coaster ride, sort of like fast-moving but relatively safe thrills that, from a secure position, promised me a final peaceful landing. But the more I looked out at the wider war, the more I came to understand my own personal inner war. I eventually came to no longer try to avoid myself by trying to focus on the world's evils because I was looking into a mirror. They were me. To see the corporate condition of man was to see myself. The soft, happy landing promised by the enjoyable, semi-safe roller coaster ride of studying end times prophecy faded into the background as the far more present and pressing real war with my unhealed flaws became unavoidable. I could no longer believe I was standing aloof from the howling, broken human mess of humankind. I would experience the sorrow and the suffering of human conditions, at least the parts that I was steeped in. And I would encounter in many others who had faced far worse a deeper depth of just how lost we all are without Jesus. I would land safely because Jesus has conquered the power of death and hell, but I would still have to face death and hell along the way. I could not ignore the past by focusing on speculations about the future. Jesus was coming back for sure because he said so, but theories of when and how no longer interested me. For as I came to know him more and allow him to guide my studies Past and future began to meld into one complete life. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. There is certainly a place for, quote, forgetting those things which are behind. Scripture says so. But in another sense, I saw that my past life must be embraced within the context of my life as a whole. I do forget what lies behind in the sense that I do not focus on the past as my identity. But I began to live in my relationship with Jesus from his perspective and my entire life as a whole, complete story. I saw differently than before. Yes, all was forgiven. Some things were more than forgiven. They were being actually put right what was not yet put right would be, and I began to learn to look at it from a new perspective also. Jesus came to save me from sin, not in sin. He loved me like I was, but as is finally becoming more commonly said, he loved me too much to leave me like I was. Now, when we speak of forgetting or remembering, we are using time words. 
We know what we mean, but we do not know fully what the words themselves mean because we don't fully know what time is. All we know is that it's short or that it's passing. If you're like me, you refer to it with reference to the age and size of children or grandchildren. Wiser people never refer to killing time, as we so often say, because time is a gift. We sadly only learn that as time becomes shorter for us. As Gandalf says in the Two Towers, quote, 300 lifetimes of men, I have walked this earth, and now I have no time. But time is the place where we become. It's a specifically formulated dimension for the purpose of helping us transcend our past and embrace our true self. But it's not only our elders who see the speed of passing time. My eldest granddaughter said often to me before she was 12 years old, time is zooming past me, Papa. School children learn early that time can also slow down as well as speed up the last 30 minutes before the 3 o'clock bell on Friday afternoon is at least two hours long. A fish, if it could talk and reason, would not know what water is. It is so much what is that it cannot be objectified, at least by the fish. We are just as ignorant of our environment as the fish. We have to stop outside time to know what sort of meaning it has to us. We speak of some traumatizing moment as having aged us, like when our toddler nearly falls off the porch and we catch him just in time. Or we refer to some momentous event as causing time to stand still, like when we first see our bride in her wedding gown. What time is it in Alpha Centauri? Or, for that matter, on the planet Mars? Well, we can't even decide the time in states where daylight savings time is debated. Time is as mercilessly intrepid as a speeding freight train, and yet it will not politely slow down to let us savor the moment as we watch our child grow. Yet it can lazily torment us with memories of past moments that evaporated all too quickly and cannot be retrieved. How can time be both so fast and so slow, so comforting and so tormenting? Bad memories can stick in your mind like tar. Even good memories can be painful because they are only now memories. Where is the life and hope in gazing at a mere fading shadow of a once-beloved object? People say well-meant but really foolish things at funerals, for instance, as they point to your heart and say something like, you can carry them in your memories forever. You hear that in movies and stuff. Such memory without any hope of restoration is not a good memory. It's a torment. We've got to take time to step outside of time. We cannot speak of time without then speaking of space unless we're referring to quantum physics mysteries, which we won't get into here. The question, how long does it take to get to London, for instance? Obviously, we'd get the reply, 
Well, it depends on how fast you go. See, speed refers to space. Time, place, and space cannot be separated. But when and what and where, all these questions, what if there's a place you could go where time could be stopped? It's contents objectified. It's errors corrected and it's losses restored. Would you take time to go there? Well, there is such a place. And you can go there. Have I got your attention? But the place is actually a person who is outside time, but time is inside him. He is outside space, but he fills all things. Everything that has been, will be, or is now is found in him, created by and for him. And he is before all things, and in him everything is held together. Hebrews chapter 1 says, God has spoken to us in the person of a son, whom he appointed heir and lawful owner of all things, by whom he created the worlds, the reaches of space and time. He is the sole expression of the glory of God, the light being, the outraying or radiance of the divine. And he is the perfect imprint and very image of God's nature, upholding and maintaining and guiding and propelling the universe by his mighty word of power. Ephesians chapter 1. He planned for the maturity of times and the climax of the ages to unify all things and head them up and consummate them in Christ. Revelation 1, which we've already referred to, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Some things in Scripture are not to be fully comprehended, but embraced and should move us to worship. This is one of those things. For 33 years, Jesus lived on earth as a man, but somehow he encompasses all previous history of time and space in himself. All ages since his earthly life, death, and resurrection are summed up in him. He is the author, the sustainer, the purpose, and the purposer of all things in all time. And we are united to him. Now, he did not purpose evil. Evil is not a thing and will eventually be utterly destroyed. He has come to where we are in our time and space, in our existence, and promised to never leave us or forsake us. But we are also placed in him, seated with him, and one with him. This is not mere jargon. These words describe a living reality that we must seek to digest and to believe. These phrases are concrete. God expects us to believe this. He who comes to me must believe that I am and that I am a rewarder of those who diligently seek me, Hebrews 11. In Jeremiah 29, he says, you shall seek me and you shall find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. Now, some commentators have said that it's not valid for Christians to read Jeremiah 29 that I just quoted as applying to them 
It was only referring to God's people in their Babylonian captivity. Babylon is a prophetic picture, though, of the world system, Revelation chapter 18. Have you ever felt like you were dying in Babylonian captivity? Held captive by the world system? The news, the world culture, the spirit of this age, the Ganges River of mixed sludge that offers a flow of life but is filled with poison, the general drive and push of living, what Jesus refers to as the cares of the world and the lusts of riches and the pressure of other things, which is the enemy of love, joy, and peace. Well, then I believe Jeremiah 29 does have something to say to all of us. Rush is the enemy of wisdom. Dallas Willard, when asked what is the greatest hindrance to Christian life, replied without hesitation, hurry. Pascal once said of a Christian writer, quote, he wrote a long book because he would not take time to write a short one. In the driving, pushing spirit of this age, trying to express truth in the opposite spirit, without living in the opposite spirit of peace, only really makes us argue. We may argue well, but we still argue. We may write a long book, make a long argument, striving against our enemy, using his weapons, but as Solzhenitsyn said once, One word of truth can outweigh the whole world. And we only hear that level of world-defying truth when we come to the one who is truth and listen to him. This requires stepping outside worldly time. Now, when we believe God's invitation to come to where he is, we step outside the flood of fallen time we then can see how things really are. This is what it means to save our souls. This is the act by which we save our souls from Babylon. We begin to live in a different time zone. Heavens. We detach, not to hide or isolate from the world, but we attach to a greater wisdom. Then we pour back into the chaos an opposite spirit from Babylon. We save our own souls and are able then to show others the way to save theirs. For what does it profit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? We tend to think that somehow refers to hell, but it actually refers to the hell of the world system that so many Christians are being tormented in right now. The Babylonian spirit of the world says, if you pull away and be still, you are wasting time. Of course, a thousand meaningless diversions, which at best dissipates the soul and at worst poisons it, well, that's not a waste of time. But to pull away, to shut out distractions, to make yourself reject being amused so that you can begin to allow your true self to rise up, to allow long-suppressed painful memories or current inner struggles to have a voice and then to lift that voice to God in real interaction with him 
so that you then can begin to hear his voice, to be still and refuse to run away until you have really been with God in God's realm instead of dragging God hurriedly through yours, well, that's a waste of time. If we begin to think of time with a capital T instead of a small t, would that help? If we begin to think in terms of dwelling always in the kingdom of God, abiding in Jesus is another term of the same thing. Then whatever we have to do in little t time becomes swallowed up in big t time. We have to practice. In fact, I'm sure we have to practice. But since this is a reality and not a mere theory, you can learn to live this way. When we learn to live in capital T time and can bring small t time under its power, we find that we have access any time, any place, any aspect of our past that we need to reconnect to via prayer. Don't doubt this. For once you believe it and begin to do it, you will stop living in guilt or grief or regret. You may still miss people you love who are gone from you, but you will not pine for them or for some place in your past when you were happier or long for people who were with you in that place. You will stop seeing time as a speeding cargo train swiftly and intrepidly carrying treasure away from you. You will view time as a passenger train carrying everything safely into its true home where all becomes its true self. A few years ago, one afternoon, Mary saw a sad, wistful gaze cross my face and she asked gently, what are you feeling? Realizing I was pining a bit and not wanting to pull her down with me, I just said, oh, I'm just missing Texas. What I was missing was a time when our kids were younger and simpler, and life in that memory seemed easier. Mary wisely said, darling, it's not a place you're missing. It's a time. And everything in that time is still safe in God's hands. Now, as usual, she was so right. Because you live in capital T time, you are able to access any time, place, or person in prayer. This truth makes prayer the most precious and meaningful aspect of your life. Now, a while ago when I referred to Jesus as the Alpha and the Omega, what I mean by access in prayer is that because he is Alpha and Omega, all time and space is summed up in him. When I come to him with a concern, that concern is accessible to him. And he is accessible to me. Therefore, the concern becomes accessible to me in my union with him. The concern may be a loss, a person, a grief, a sin, a place, you name it. They are not lost. What does it really mean to remember? It means more than to merely recall to mind or replay an event in the mind. We erroneously speak of learning something by heart, 
But what we really mean when we usually say that is that we, we learn by mental rote. We just call it by heart. What we really and truly learn by heart is far more than rote memory. To remember or recall is much closer to relive than to merely review. The Latin word translated remember is recordare and is the root word where we get the word cardia, cardiac, the heart. In Latin, to remember is to let rise from the heart the life essence of a past event so that that event lives again. The same truth is found in the Greek word anamnesis, which means to call back into the present something from the past. When Jesus takes bread and wine and gives it to us to eat and to drink, saying, as often as you do this, remember. He is not saying to think. He is saying to live, to experience. To remember is to reconnect. Just as dismember means to cut in pieces, to remember means to reattach. This communicates the Hebrew idea in Greek and Latin terms. It is only we 20 and 21st century Westerners who have reduced the word remember to an impotent mental exercise, which we don't do very well on good things and do overly well on bad things. Where does now go? (laughs) See, there it went. By the time you grasp the question of where, the question has already gone into some invisible past. When you really consider it, you have to see that you and I cannot live in a real present on our own. Every moment we live is to some degree contemplating a past or anticipating a future. The only way we can connect with now is to connect to the one who is beyond time and who holds all time in his hands. This is the time with a capital T I mentioned. In union with him, you stop feeling the small T time zooming or creeping or depriving or foreboding and you learn to be still and know that I am God, Psalm 46. The Hebrew word for be still here is translated in Aramaic as simply the word relax, let go, stop striving to control. This certainly includes let go of time. Then in that stillness, you can learn to move with him through time and space to connect with people far away or to pray healing and help for broken issues, present or even past. For what exactly is the past? Have you ever counted the rings in a tree? Each ring is a year of that tree's existence. In a sense, each ring is in the past. But obviously, each ring is fully present, making up the whole tree. Take take away the rings, and there is no tree. The tree is made of its rings. Now, sentimentality and nostalgia, as we have talked about before, can be a sickness. 
In fact, that's exactly what the word nostalgia means, to be homesick or sick from longing for something that you can't reach. Of course, dwelling on some portion of the past, a time, a place, or a person can become a source of mental, emotional, or even spiritual sickness. But ignoring the past can be detrimental also. It depends on why you go there and who you go there with. Mike Hudson wrote a great song a few years ago recorded by the Imperials that says, the things I've done, the things I've seen, melt into a lifelong dream, and I become what I've gone through. I am so thankful I've been there with you. The difference between remembering the sick sort of way or remembering the healthy, holy way is whether you visit the past with only yourself or with the Lord. Whether you go there to haunt and be haunted by the mere past or whether in love and faith you move into prayer with the power of the Holy Spirit for the purpose of redeeming the time, either present time or even past time. Now, that phrase, redeeming the time, interesting, important phrase. It's only the King James Version that uses that terminology. Yes, I believe we can, in a sense, redeem the time. After all, that's what salvation refers to. Partly, I will restore to you the years the locust and the caterpillar and the cankerworm have eaten from Joel 2. In Ephesians, Paul says we are to redeem the time. More modern translations say make the most of your time or take full advantage of every opportunity. And that's okay. That's valid. But here the King James is richer and I think more helpful. Because to redeem the time suggests something greater than merely using your time well. Redeem. Ex agorazo in Greek. Ex is out of. Agorazo is to purchase. To redeem is to purchase out of. Time, the word is kairos. There's the word chronos. That's not the word that's used here. Chronos means chronological time on, on your watch. Kairos is special time. A time that you must handle properly or you will lose it. And so he says, redeem the time. And what do we redeem it out of? The evil days we're in. Redemption in the New Testament is only through the blood of Jesus. So when you put all these words together, to redeem the time is to purchase out of evil a special time that if left unredeemed would remain in the hands of evil. Oswald Chambers said, there is no space or time with Almighty God. We cannot think beyond the limits of birth and death. If we are to know anything beyond our earthly life and time, it must be by revelation of the Spirit. And that's exactly what I'm describing. Henry Balad is a Jewish, uh, excuse me, a Jesuit priest in, in uh, Egypt. He says, quote, Deliberately to take up my own existence in the light of God is to embark in a dialogue. 
to discover a presence, the presence of the one who has followed me from the moment of my existence. Maybe you have to reach a certain age before being able to take this truth of this very wise priest to heart, but I don't think it's the mere passing of time that brings us to this truth. But the wisdom of how we see time, that's what matters. And that kind of wisdom doesn't necessarily come by the passing of time. It comes by a certain kind of heart. I know young people who are wise in this way, and sadly I know older ones who are not. But it's never too late to learn. Jeremiah one five, God says to him, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I know you've heard that quoted. Think about it. Psalm 139, verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book all the days of my life were written before ever they took shape, when as yet there was none of them. I know you've heard that verse before. Think about it. And Psalm 138 says, He will perfect that which pertains to me. Henry Bullard goes on to say that to be in eternal life means that all we have experienced has marked us forever and becomes a part of our eternity. Obviously not our sins, which are washed away, but even the bad events may be transformed by a grace we cannot yet see. And he goes on to say, quote, We shall always be who we have been, what we have felt, And all that will one day rise again and be eternally alive. One day all our events will lie before us like an open book, like a present reality. The past redeemed will come alive again. Nothing passes away that is of value. And all that is of love is of redeemable value. Now, if this idea that I just quoted frightens you because there are people you do not ever want to see again because either they injured you or you damaged them or both, don't worry. You are being made mature in love. Perfect love casts out all fear. When you see him, you shall be like him. And he will work in you to make you free from all fear and perfect you in love. This is not a goal you work for. This is your preordained destiny. Think of it. To be so filled with love that even your most despised memory, whether caused by others or by you, is not only healed, but you have become incarnated with a love for those involved as if they were your cherished earthly relations. Again, if this thought upsets you, it's good to stop listening to me and to get along with God and open all this up to him. Now, we don't have to wait for eternal life to begin for us. We are in it now, and it is in us now. 
Have you ever think about the pieces of your life? Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Hearken to the voice of my cry. Psalm 5 says, Hearken to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For unto you will I pray. My voice shall you hear in the morning. O Lord, in the morning will I direct my prayer to you and will look up. This psalm was put to music back during the Jesus movement and we have sung it for years. I sometimes sing it as a morning prayer just to get my body and my mind in line with my spirit. A few months ago, Mary and I were visiting her parents in our former home of Texas. I got up before sunrise and drove to one of my favorite spots overlooking the football field and campus where I had many early young adult memories. Stepping out of my car to watch the breaking dawn, my mind raced with those memories. That's not always a good thing. Often we need to shut down these kind of thinking patterns and train our minds to be quiet in the presence of God and let Him set the agenda, not not us. But this time, I felt I should just go with it. I let the memories run like the reels of old films. Then I finally said out loud, Lord, all the pieces of my life, Mississippi Gulf Coast, London, Europe, Texas, now North Carolina, Lord, I bring you the many pieces of my life. Many of them were broken right here at this spot. As I said there, looking out over the Texas hillside. I thank you that nothing and no one is beyond your cross, Lord Jesus. And I begin to sing and I begin to worship. Now, earlier that week, a good friend had introduced me to the Passion Translation of the New Testament in Psalms. I had it with me. And as the early morning rays began to illuminate the pages of my Bible, they became light enough for me to see. And out of what I thought was sheer curiosity, I thought I would turn to Psalm 5 and and, uh, the one I'd been singing and see how the Passion Translation would, would say those same words. I read, At each and every sunrise... You will hear my voice as I prepare my sacrifice of prayer to you. Every morning I lay out the pieces of my life on the altar and wait for your fire to fall upon my heart. There was that phrase again. The pieces of my life. A phrase I had just gotten finished speaking out loud. Now, not often... But on several notable occasions in my prayer life, I have become aware of entering into another dimension where time and space seems to not matter. I don't mean I lose consciousness or see a different surrounding than I would naturally see. I just mean that inside me, the Holy Spirit takes me to himself in a way that causes all other thoughts or concerns to step away into relative insignificance. And all that seems to matter is being in that moment with him. The pieces of my life began to come before me. Now let me explain. These were not memories of unconfessed sin. 
I had long ago brought these painful and often shameful memories to the Lord in repentance. I was consciously aware of these memories, not as memories and not as unforgiven, but as events, events that still lived on in the people whom I had damaged, or in some cases who had damaged me. Again, let me be clear that these were not unconfessed sins. I usually can tell when the enemy is accusing me with sin that is already under the blood and has no power over me. This was not that. It was as if I was being taken by the hand, so to speak. I don't want to make this too vivid and give you the impression that I was in some out-of-the-body transcendent experience. I was fully in my body and mind and fully aware of my surroundings, yet I was also fully present to God in a way I don't usually feel able to, to know. And the memories and the people in them were as present to me as I was to God, if that makes sense to you. I, I can't explain it any other way, I don't think. The words I had just read from Psalm 5 in the Passion Translation were as vivid to me as if they were written in flame on my heart. I lay out the pieces of my life on your altar and wait for your fire to fall upon my heart. I began to recount people, people more than places or events, because obviously what seemed to matter most were the people. I began to hold them up in the presence of the Lord as a priest would lay out the pieces of the sacrifice on the altar waiting for the holy fire of God to fall upon them, just as the psalm describes. I became aware that I was participating in a movement of redemption, that the people and events I was naming before the throne of God were being positively affected by what I was doing as I named them, blessed them, celebrated the grace and mercy upon them, which was more real to me than the memory of sin. I sensed another presence very different from the holy presence I was in approaching me. It, it came to me in the midst of this intercession and tried to drag me into another mindset, either shame and guilt or self-pity and nostalgia. These were people I had truly sinned against. I had damaged their lives, some very deeply. I had also lost them on a human emotional level. I had lost them and lost access to them. They were no longer reachable by me on a human level. I could not safely or healthily contact them, either by phone, letter, or face-to-face. -face. From the standpoint of mere human relationship, they were no longer a part of my world, and it was mostly my fault. This was an easy target for either or both of the negative forces I sensed being shoved at me. Guilt was saying, you are a damaging, sinful, selfish, fake hypocrite. But then self-pity would say, well, if they had only really loved me, they would still love me and they would forgive me, but they never did. They just threw me away. Now, neither of these powers had any validity. I had repented. My heart was clean. The proof of my transformation was that I wanted to pray blessing and goodness on every one of these people and that I could pray that. I prayed with power, with joy, with faith. No wonder the enemy wanted to pull me off of this prayer and drag me into self-pity and nostalgia. 
Most of all, I prayed with love. I named each person one by one. It was not hard to list them because they were vividly present to my recall. They were not the pieces of my life. People are not pieces. The pieces were the parts of me that had become broken from carrying the emotions over those people, events, and memories. That is what was changing in me. I was forgiven. But on a deeper, more profound, but unconscious level, my heart was damaged by those memories. While I was being healed of this, I was also at the same time interceding for the same healing grace to be poured out on them. I probably won't know until heaven what happened for them that morning. But the change that began in me that morning was tangible. It was only the beginning. As the consciousness of this anointing lifted, and I returned to the normal events of the day, I continued to be a bit harassed by the temptation to slide into negative interpretations of these memories, shame, guilt, and self-pity. Now, self-pity is opposed to grief. These emotions are much like wheat and tares. Shame, uh, self-pity, and grief look almost exactly alike. But it's vital that we discern the difference. One bears good fruit and the other is fruitless, like wheat and tares. Grief, when processed prayerfully, brings good fruit. Self-pity refuses to embrace the goodness of God and is fruitless or even worse, destructive. I know the difference because I've had a lot of practice in having to discern the difference. I became aware that God was giving me a gift of understanding and insight. In this revelation of Psalm 5, I was shown how to not only refuse the negative interpretations of the memories of shameful failures, but I had been shown how to transform such negatives into great opportunities for healing intercessory prayer. It would prove to be a vitally important truth in days to come, for I had deeper lessons to learn about this. A day before my 65th birthday, a friend was praying for me. As he did, he saw me having a heart attack. I would have a heart attack that very day, unbeknownst to him. But in the picture, he saw the word attack sort of being crossed through. And in its place, the words unpack put in in their place. He at first doubted, like most of us would, that this had any meaning at all. But when he sent me the message, I was, of course, overwhelmed by the accuracy of the vision and let him know how much I understood and deeply appreciated it. I'm continuing to unpack the burdens of my heart, which I have unconsciously but wrongly stored inside me. Mary and I know without any doubt that this stack of unpacked, unhealed, undealt with old pain caused this heart attack. It needed unpacking, so here I am. As I write these words to you all, I am carrying on my normal work, but I withdraw from the normal demands of daily life much more than I previously did to make sure I'm giving proper time to unpacking. It's painful and it's healing. It's tearful and it's joyful. He who has begun a good work in me will complete it. 
Now, my point in sharing all this is not to unburden myself at your expense, but to help us all see the way time, space, memories, and prayer sometimes works. I'll close this message by relating to you the very first time I encountered this truth. It was 1980. I was dealing with my own private wars inside myself, but trying to help others at the same time. And a man came into the office that I had prayed with on several occasions before. He was an army veteran of Vietnam who was badly damaged by the war, both physically and far more emotionally. Memories tormented him. Though he had come to see me for help before, he let me know right off this time that that was not why he had come. He had come this time to let me know that he was going to commit suicide. There was nothing I or anyone could do or say to change his mind. He easily dismissed my pleas and arguments with what he had to say next. He said, quote, you don't have a family yet, but if you knew someone was coming at night for the intent and purpose to kill your wife and children, would you stop him by any means necessary? Of course you would. Well, I am that man. I can't control my mind anymore. I can't control my actions. I have waked my wife, choking her, thinking she's the enemy. I pull pistols on my kids at night. I am the intruder who needs to be stopped, and I will stop me. I didn't know what I was doing or what I was saying. I was not aware of my actions, but only my inner cry to God for help as I slid out of my chair and pulled him onto the floor. I heard myself say, quote, you got to let me pray one more time. Just let me pray. You don't have to do a thing. Just let me do the praying. And I suddenly saw in my mind's eye a sort of triangle of time. I saw, so to speak, the year we were in, which was 1980. In another corner, I saw this soldier in Vietnam in 1970-something. Then I saw the cross Again, when I say I saw, I mean I was mentally aware, but very strongly of this concept in an image in my mind. I didn't seem uh, to, to, to care whether the cross was coming to us or we were going to the cross, because where the cross is concerned, time and space has no meaning. I don't exactly remember what I prayed, only that I somehow expressed for God to gather up the memories and brokenness within this man and unite it to Jesus on the cross and lift it off of him, lift off of him the effects of the evil things he had encountered or that he had even perpetrated. That was it. It was not wordy or theological or, or even polite. It was simply me and him crying out in time, to the timeless, all-encompassing redemption of the cross. In 1980, we took hold of something that occurred in 1970 and gathered it up into the cross that in history occurred in, give or take, 33 A.D. But the one on the cross with arms stretched out, hanging between heaven and earth, already had his suffering soldier in his love and care along with all mankind, all creation, all time, and all space. He was teaching me this lesson that I evidently am still learning. The soldier was healed. 
But I went on to learn over and over this same lesson through many experiences of prayer with people. And evidently, I'm still learning. And it's my joy and privilege to help you along the same journey. God bless you all. Thank you for listening. I know how the past comes back to haunt you See the ghosts that come to stalk your mind Memories that scandalize and taunt you Specters from the grave you left behind And the fear is strong and growing stronger every day Every time you eat the 
flesh of my flesh bone of my bone born of my blood